Welcome to Sintalk. The Sintalkers around the table today discuss the banal and boring. We'll think about boredom and its relationship with modernity, language, change, and the environment. Does modernity produce boredom? Were people ever bored in the distant past? Is boredom private? What makes a place engaging? How is the banal aestheticized in colonial and other literature? What might have led to novels about ordinary people? Why do singers sing the same note every day? What mixes and what does not? Where does the exceptional come from? Are humans rediscovering the ordinary? And what is the very long-term future of banality and change? We are pleased and privileged to have three Sin Talkers with us here today. Dr. Himanshu Bhorte. He is an architect and an urbanist and is currently at TISS Mumbai. His research interests are contemporary Indian architecture and urban issues more generally. Professor Shoykat Majumdar, he is a novelist and a scholar of literature. His scholarly interests are modern and contemporary literature. He teaches at Ashoka University in Delhi. And Dr. Peggy Mohan, she is a linguist working on language mixture and hybridization. She has worked on Caribbean languages and languages of India. So, Shoykat, why don't you set the ball rolling with you? Um, maybe with the somewhat odd fascination that you have, or at least you worked on this for a while, or thought about this for a while. What does what does the banal mean in in context of literature? Um, do you do you give it the designation of a certain kind of emotion? What kind of an affective status does it have? And how does one use that lens, roughly speaking, to um, go back and look at it? Look at the literary traditions behind us, what has happened, what's not happened, what what state does it have for you, how do, how do we think about it? Sure, uh, for me the thinking um, of this really goes back to an episode in, you know, Sarvati's Don Quixote, it's like this right. um, point where um, the Don is uh, traveling on a horse and as we know that, you know, he lives in a past age, he lives in a feudal age, kind of romantic, sort of pursuit of fantasy and he has this very practical square Sanko Panza right. uh, who obviously um, and then they come by this famous windmills and then Don Quixote shouts so oh, those are demons those are um, I want to attack them and Sanko Panza is like sir those are not demons those are um, those are windmills and of course Don sort of disregards him and runs at the windmills and falls face flat and I think for some critics that is the birth of the novel that the moment where the extraordinary reality of demons have given way to banal windmills right. is when a kind of older age of feudal romance has given away to a much more banal, disenchanted, secular age uh, with the realism as its narrative mode. When was this? Um, when was Don Quixote written? You know, this would be like you know, obviously 350, you know, 17th century. Or, yeah. This is kind of 
pre sort of looking ahead of that because right. feudalism is still the prominent mode but it's almost like it's looking ahead and in many ways i i have thought about this a lot and for me if you ask me what is the one difference between modern and pre-modern literature there are of course many differences mm-hmm. i think the most important difference for me is that uh the banal you know and of course its effective cousin boredom gets aestheticized in modern literature in ways it wasn't the case you know in, in a ways it wasn't central in a kind of primary i mean Chekhov's famous comment that, you know, how do you write? Put your cigarette on the ashtray, I'll write a short story about it. Right. Or Virginia Woolf or Joyce. In a way, I think Flaubert, Boredom, in a way, the kind of grandeur of this cathartic emotions, pity, fear, the sort of the Homeric traditions, we are looking at something far more trivial, far more marginal, far more uh, and of course there are many reasons behind it i mean of course secularism is one the if you if you are in a secular age you don't believe in god you don't believe in fantasy it's more scientific perception focus on interiority you know why we are looking at things in a more microscopic way um you know it really begins with what's still there's still some gap between you know the so-called industrial revolution does that enlightenment and you know the, some of the names it took right it almost comes 150 right years or right. so later it's like late 19th early 20th century right. uh, uh, no this uh, i'm looking this... more at the late 18th century for me the hmm. real crux is the european enlightenment right the european enlightenment is the point where obviously modernity as we understand it and thanks to the thanks to colonialism that modernity has spread worldwide right whether it's secularism science rationality industrial progress and very crucially for literature print mm-hmm. you know all of these things come into being and a whole new model of aesthetics are being created you know that the whole idea of you know that creativity is something original that there are original stories the whole idea that sort of literature is something you sit and read that you engage in private so all of these are coming into being in a romantic age and the aesthetic of the ordinary is a kind of unique creation of this which is very fascinating because in many ways the aesthetic was i would imagine um entwined with everyday life in ways before then the aesthetic becomes like a separate thing but ironically this is this separation which also brings about the ordinary in the focus i mean middle class rise of the middle class the bourgeoisie in ordinary people are suddenly the center of literature in a way it wasn't there with homer with shakespeare aristotle both, both as characters both as and, characters and readers, readers writers, writers, writers in every way i mean samuel richardson's first novel is really a collection of love letters written to written for he was writing love letters for working class women for maids who couldn't write and out of that the novel pamela gets written so in a way it's really people who would not find themselves in at the center of literary narratives before or they if they did they would find a very specific like with shakespeare the main plot always belongs to the aristocrats the subplot belongs to sort of primarily about the kings and queens exactly primarily you know i mean aristotle says that tragedy must be about a high born individual hmm. so that i think we see it's a kind of almost a democ- a certain democracy entering ordinary people entering this literary forms and 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 you know let's go to the stylistics of it right uh, mm-hmm. shaikat because i think in a way when you say banal you almost mean it in the sense of everyday the 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 minute and so on you don't necessarily mean uninteresting right so uh, yeah. because there's a way in which one one thinks of banal with with the affective cousin like you mentioned boredom now 
were those novels, some of these works that you referred to, and you know that entire corpora by and large, was it was it less interesting? Now, of course, they've mm-hmm. lived through the last hundred, two hundred years, so it exists. You know what I mean? Right. Well, that's exactly why I think this question is interesting. Is it interesting to talk about the uninteresting? Yeah. You know, can you make? You know, obviously. A piece of writing about boredom should not be boring itself. That's yeah. the whole point. But that is very interesting. And actually, I think what happens here is it starts with a more neutral term, the everyday. Mm-hmm. You know, and of course, for the novel, the everyday. I mean, the novel sort of sort of moves from the adventure story and the kind of dramatic stories to the living room. It is just the everyday. And then, you know, the Italian um, scholar Franco Moretti has this very interesting observation that how uh, there are those fillers. Early novels have Jane Austen's Pride and Prejudice as an example. Everybody knows that there are really three three turning points. Elizabeth meets Darcy. Uh, they uh, she's disgusted by him. And then 27 chapters later, he proposes, she accepts, and then... <laughs> but the, this is... He, he finds there are three fillers. And everything they're, else they're, is... Everything else is a... T- everything, sorry, a three turning points, and everything else is a filler. They have... They drink tea, they go for walks, and they meet other people, the people <laughs> do laundry. I mean, the, everything. And that's unique to the novel, because the novel is a form which needs the everyday. You can write a poem about a very powerful moment. You can... Theatre is about the conflict, but the novel has to have this kind of banal moments. Right. But then something interesting happens to the 19th century where um, somehow the what the everyday was in the background, but it starts to become the foreground. Whereas somehow having tea was the background to a more interesting event like proposing, then slowly having tea becomes the point of the novel. Right. And that's where we are slowly moving towards modernism. You're slowly moving towards your, you know, begin with a novel like Madame Bovary in the mid-19th century where, you know, Emma Bovary and her boredom is actually, I, mean, I think I personally think Madame that's, Bovary that's is a great modern novel. Is a novel about boredom, which yeah. is why it's really fascinating more than craft. Yeah. And then we are moving into, you know, Wolf and Joyce and all these writers for whom these really fragmented moments are what we get. And there are all kinds of colonial literature, right? Do you have any familiarity with this, Peggy? I mean, in the Caribbean sense, for example, I, I'm, I'm sure there must be many colonial Indian writers and so on. And do mm-hmm. they touch upon the very same registers? Yeah, or? I mean, there are many ways of thinking about it. I think even with a writer like Joyce, who's an Irish colonial writer, uh, the sense of boredom and fatigue and tedium with Dublin was a very important force. I mean, the whole famous Irish paralysis that people <laughs> must get away. I mean, the whole it's yeah. provincial people have felt it all their all the their lives. The action is elsewhere. Action is elsewhere. And that's exactly because the perception of modernity is situated somewhere else that I have to go to Paris or London or for that matter, you know, provincial Maharashtra coming to Mumbai. There's nothing here. Life is dull. And this has been a big colonial, you know, interpolation. And that, that has explained the migration of artists and writers worldwide. I mean, they've gathered in Bloomsbury or or Greenwich right. Village or Left Bank, this whole journey. So I Very think that has always been a kind of a trajectory. So Himanshu, oh. how do you come to this? How have architects come to this? Is this a, is there a way of asking this question in your context? So uh, what, what what is banal or boring in your world? So I mean, reflecting on Shaikat's, uh, what Shaikat just said uh, alerted me to a possible um, kind of inversion uh, which begins uh, in modern architecture with uh, taking, with raising the banal to elevating it to the status of uh, the extraordinary, where you take uh, simple white walls, unadorned walls, okay? You take very simple unadorned forms uh, 
and something which and you raise them to the to uh, something to be aimed for and you do that through abstraction so you actually abstract out uh, something an essence of the ordinary and 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 if one wears the art history architectural history kind of lens where do you situate this moment where does this come what does it follow this and is why this is so um so this moment i think achieves its strength as a proposition in the 1920s mm-hmm. because that's when really uh, cobusier mees have uh, especially cobusier with his proposals for the entire you know re- redesigning paris etc um they are put out in public they're they're not accepted takes 20 years and post war uh, conditions for that to really take off but uh, that's where it comes up but there is a particular history uh, which is of to do with the profession itself seeking to create it kind of salvage or or protect its own turf because in the 19th century the engineers have gone way ahead of the architects and architects <laughs> are quibbling over surface details and decoration engineers are building the eiffel tower and bridges and right. you know, all kinds of things so, so it's, it's a crisis a, of sorts it's a crisis and what they pick on i think is a uh, we we are not sure how genuinely meant it is but the <laughs> but the democratic uh, uh, potential of technology and then giving it a cultural expression in terms of modernist form but the int- and so the ordinary gets elevated to this aspirational level and what actually happens is it ends up when it's generalized it ends up becoming super ordinary super boring right so it's a very interesting cycle that i i can see now uh, from what shaikat saying when i look at architecture and uh, to the extent that after the 1950s and 60s you have this huge uh, uh, backlash against the boredom of modernist environments correct and it just makes you think uh, as as you were speaking shaikat about uh, uh, european literature i was wondering about indian architecture traditional pre modern and that's where the banal is actually already uh, or the everyday is already raised to a certain level of never being fully never being boring what and you, never having to what do you mean what do you have in mind when you say that so anything from a um, small kerala house not a tarawad not a nayar house necessarily which is more privileged but a small hut uh, with its uh, this kind of openness to uh, the space around a certain kind of uh, ease kind of natural uh, fit with our body rhythms our needs uh, environmental needs and social um broadly your habitus you know how how you your disposition towards uh, your environment towards action and which which we recognize as a quality of central to vernacular architecture everywhere but it makes me think that we in the vernac- what is called the vernacular architecture you have actually uh, a different kind of trajectory of uh, keeping it to the everyday but also raising it uh, to uh, something which is not doesn't fly off out of the orbit of the ordinary but is actually quite special now the conception of these sorts of structures and i know you would prevent me from reducing it to a thing um, but 
in the conception of it are they meant to be interesting engaging are, are do those are, because you know the description that you just gave is highly functional you know meant to do this meant to do that and so on is is that part there in the conception of these spaces so um that's to do complete philosophical justice to it would be very complicated but i think a shortcut is to say that because the uh, say a traditional house uh, built by a, a system of traditional crafts people is not conceived in the abstract elsewhere in some other medium like say a paper or a computer screen and not then produced remotely uh, it's actually built uh, by people who are in that space so the conception and the building are uh, and the dwelling there is a continuity yeah, of they experience are, they're contiguous yeah. they're, and they're, they're almost the same exactly thing. so, so yeah. lived experience is constant so what you're designing is being tested against lived experience of it so in a way this space emerges out of your living absolutely right in a way put it I mean, that, that's that's what is happening what do what do these mean things mean to you peggy well, now mm-hmm. one can we have tried to think of this in the context of literature novels mm-hmm. literary forms the built form a little bit and we'll go back to them but can one ask the same question of language oh, yes. more generally um it's all coming through because while they are talking about what they are talking about i'm hearing resonances with the sort of things that we need to think about you even use the word vernacular architecture which suddenly seemed to me to be <laughs> what one was thinking about in language and i was also listening to you and seeing a change in the eras in literature I'm I'm saying you of course the read, the listener can't see so that I'm turning to the right mm-hmm. yeah. yeah and that we actually having ages that are changing and moving towards a different kind of focus in music and in language um these have a strong link to new players new ideologies new ways of things being done or if you look let's look at for example in indian languages if you have to study the earliest indian languages that are available for study the rigveda is not even colloquial speech we don't know what they said we have to almost accept that we don't know right. what was the banal then and we have to almost try to extract it out of the highly ornate rigveda which was memorized and possibly it's changed it's a formal kind of language yes right. so, but that is all we had and we assume wrongly that there was much more of it perhaps that was there was not right. so we have to look through what was very formal then to try to imagine what was not you go back to just like how do you extract the informal the everyday from the formal yes so then you look to say the 10th and 12th centuries in indian languages all over india and you start seeing something breaking through the surface it's like there was a um below sea level are all the dialects and something happens at that time and what were just simply dialects with highly formal sanskrits prakrits uh linking people across a larger landmass you start seeing new formations coming up in india which are smaller they have a gravitational center regions and you start finding these little things that were called dialects which were ordinary moving out of that zone i'm 
and beginning to uh, engage larger issues. They're engaging, for example, in urban culture. So out of the, the urban culture did not come out of the Sanskrit. It helped it. It was always there as a boost in case something was needed. Uh, but but what do you think led to the somewhat simultaneous formation of these regional languages? That's something I'm struggling with right yeah, now. Uh, Obviously, there were things to do with like uh, challenges to the caste order, then the battles to get the to put down the Buddhists again. By which time, uh, crafts had come up, urban centers had come up, and out of what was very banal, below sea level, not to even be seen, not to be even remembered, came new things that perhaps were the a much a better expression of a modern age. And something happened, for example, in linguistics, sometime around the 1920s. Instead of focusing intensely on how you should speak and the ornate languages, a prescriptive notion that this is the way educated people speak, you started finding linguists saying, no, we Going won't do that. Going to ordinary languages. No, they went beyond ordinary languages. They went to the languages that were completely unseen, the tribal right. Native American languages. And out of that was born the notion that we've got to evolve a perspective of language from how ordinary people speak. And we have to listen. We have to note it down, observe, stand back somewhat. Initially, you were doing it with languages you yourself didn't belong to, so you had an outsider's view as well. So what was very ordinary became terribly exotic because it was to you. Then you started looking at your own languages, and it's not very easy to see beyond what is ordinary because all of us speak languages and think that they're quite normal and banal, ordinary, and then someone looks at it from the outside and tells you, whoa, you have no person marking in Malayalam. Oh, you have no ergativity in Bengali. You're all your, always your subject agrees with your verb. How exciting. And suddenly then you can turn new eyes. You can only see better. these things from the outside. I think so. Because mm. I even believe that in Sanskrit, the great man Parnini had the name like Parnini for, for a reason because the Panis were not um, the Vedic people. Right. And they had a tradition of noting things down. And if he was indeed from that tradition, he could look outside his own and see this strange thing with lots of word endings, with something called Sandhi. You cannot hear Sandhi in your own language. Sometimes, but once someone points it out to you, it's no longer <laughs> normal and ordinary. So there's a strange mix of... Uh, the times changing and us finding that the real uh, subject matter is in the ordinary and it begins to sparkle when an unordinary person sees it. Which, which, is, which is why our interactions and so on, right? Which mm -hmm. is, does colonialism play a role, at least when we look at it in the, in the, in the later period? Colonialism. They, of course, were able to look at us if you're talking about with a very these, different kind of lens. With. Yes. They had their own biases 
And But maybe the only thing that they did, which to me would have a value, is to point out to us that there was something there to be seen in the ordinary. And there, there were certain kinds of Brits who ran around and retrieved Sanskrit texts, which we don't even know that some of these things were just quietly hidden within a few families. And we believe that they were always available to everyone, but they brought them out. That's a nice thing that they did. They brought a lot of wrong things with it, long, wrong notions. They were coming from something that was trying to find master races and so on. But the merely seeing us with new eyes made us look again and we could see more because so, we could see from the inside. So you know, this links in a way to what you were mentioning, Shaikat, a little while ago. Now, I think in a way what what Peggy is saying is that even the existence of this category of ordinary is, is kind of made to come to be when the other is brought to the fold, right? In a way, so for example, the the novels or the everyday, the quotidian, the mundane and so on, was, was it all done very consciously? Was it all done very consciously with the idea of creating this category? Yeah, I know that's, that's the whole aestheticization exactly. project. Uh, they're all coming full circle. I mean, and Himanshu was talking about um, foregrounding the ordinary and that actually brings up a problem. Uh, I talk a lot about um, in my creative writing classes that art, um, the way I see it, is always a kind of dialectic between um, the alien and the familiar. Hmm. You do need, when you're reading a novel or watching a movie or anything, you do need to say that, oh, I know that character. It's exactly like my neighborhood aunt or that's how the, you know, my mother nags me or whatever. You need the ordinary, but you also don't just want the ordinary. You want the ordinary to be alienated. This was the Russian formalist's argument about language also, obviously, and the new critics argument that it's ordinary language, you know, you know, Wittgenstein and Cavill and ordinary language made unfamiliar, defamiliarized. So the defamiliarized, the idea of the defamiliar is that the familiar has to be there. Hmm. The only, then can you defamiliarize it. In the same way, you also, um, when you, um, you also need the extraordinary, but even we know from everything from Star Trek to, you know, today's Black Mirror. And I think the reason why Black Mirror is popular is because it is a recognizable future. So we need we need human motivations and the ordinary even in the most extraordinary. And I think some art forms are closer to the sort of the alien and some art forms are closer to the ordinary. And the best literary example I always cite is between Walter Scott and Jane Austen writing at the early 19th century. Walter Scott is obviously writing in also a, also kind of a male spectacular right. grand tradition. You know, the whole idea again, thinking of um, your talk of the kind of sort of the um, functional and the small or when Peggy was talking about the vernacular and then there's Jane Austen her six inches of ivory just conversation in living rooms so and there were two writers and I think that's a very interesting moment for literature because Scott is almost writing in a romance mode and yet it's Jane Austen who would be identified as high literature in subsequent traditions, you know, so, uh, so yeah. we used to say that or, it's not that yes, the extraordinary yes. goes away. It's always there. In fact, popular liter literature continues to thrive around. I mean, from Tolkien to Harry Potter, that is what it is. And but what we consider high literature right. becomes identified around this tradition of the 
ordinary, the small, the trivial. Even the kind of things that Himanshu was talking about, they were exactly. almost considered avant-garde, right? Yes, Just exactly. Just a plain wall or whatever. That kind of architecture that comes out of lived experience, that's actually very important for a lot of criticism, especially feminist criticism of this kind of grand Hegelian platonic mode of grand narratives and they were always seen as kind of male narratives but this kind of small stories I mean Austin is an example and there's so many women writers you can think of who really um, think of and of course like According to the French feminists, the male female writers like Joyce and all who are sort of male writers writing in a female mode. Why don't we go to so, boredom or this whole idea of boring itself? Can one can one do something about that? Like were people bored at all in the distant past? I mean, I know there's no <laughs> way for us to know, but there is. How does one even begin to understand that question or try and does 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 modernity produce boredom? Does it come to be because of I don't know? I think it's impossible to say that people were not bored in the past. I mean, the people talk about acedia, the monks experiencing acedia in the monasteries. But <laughs> I do feel, and this is really a question for um, psychologists and social sociologists to answer. But there are certain rhythms of post-industrial life, uh, certain facets of capitalism, Adam Smith and the whole alienation of labor, and Marx, Adam Smith's pin theory and Marx's notion of alienation of labor, um, it produces certain kind of alienation which were unknown in the pre-modern age. So it's a certain kind of boredom. It's a certain, certain kind kinds of boredom and of course very crucially the invention of clock time. Hmm. So once you start measuring time, and obviously we know when we're bored, we are looking at the clock, but when time is connected to the rhythms of the harvest or sort of the days, then it's not it's not to say it wasn't bored. The but cycles are longer. Much longer. But then certain kinds of things are becoming uh, more Where prominent. Where are you on this, Himanshu? This, this question. I mean, what is your instinct? I'm pretty sure you don't study this, but... Were people bored in the past? Is it a certain flavor of boredom that we talk about when we talk about it today? What's your instinct? So, of course, I'm free to... Uh, speculate. Speculate, because I yes. know nothing about this. Uh, my first sense was when when Shoykat started speaking was, or when you asked the question, uh, if the past has uh, evidence of creativity, if we have great literature coming from the past, from the pre-modern past, anywhere, I think they would certainly have been bored a lot. Right? It's perhaps boredom is, in a sense, the You're fertile it's a, it's soil, a, right? A, hmm. Which, out of which, uh, I think which would necessitate a kind of, or which would perhaps be the medium in which there's enough ferment uh, and then out of that, you have something special because ultimately, I mean, if you take uh, uh, Doha's you know, of Kabir or you know, whatever such uh, literature we have, you have some, you have thoughts about the potter, right? You have the very, very ordinary which is taken and then, of course, connected to uh, in or into which you read bigger themes. So I would suspect that even today, we, that's been, I think, the discussion too, that uh, a generation that is increasingly growing up without boredom, of without being free to be bored and having to construct its own, uh, you know, uh, measures or, you know, find its own uh, uh, engagements to uh, to create things, uh, that 
we are that, that is part of the discussion that we are seeing where which i'm i'm not passing any closing judgment on this but i think this the moment of boredom is has perhaps been very necessary the question and i think i i i would agree with your instinct that uh, shaikat that there's a particular kind of boredom that has set in and i think that is interesting to to think what about what does that do to architecture does it do anything at all because what does it do to living i think it does a lot of uh, after modernism there has been a lot of harm to living i think the uh, what is living when you say living what 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 is because you might have it in a certain your meaning might be something else so what is living let's let's keep it at dwelling to make it a little closer sure. to uh, thinking about architecture so if you uh, if you think of uh, a i think dwell there is no dwelling without the dwelling body yeah so dwelling starts with the body and as andre lafevre says you the body produces its own space so and i i produce and it's of course a lived body a beingly body which means that i produce a system of uh, social and spatial relationships around me in perhaps the way i sit in the chair okay in the fact of making a chair or maybe never making a chair in india you no know, we were sitting mostly <laughs> on the ground right uh-huh. uh, and then you know needing say the height of uh, the traditional many huts in india or even traditional kerala houses they are, they come down very low right so that whole uh, particular particular kind of space that is produced as uh, spinning out of the rhythms of dwelling gathering in your local resources opportunities and producing actually a system uh, of what has been called affordances which is opportunities you know prohibitions i think that is something there's a kind of organic link that historically has been there in uh, in in traditional architecture which when it comes to uh, modern architecture has been broken because of the fact of the architect uh, or builder or speculator being far away from that whole process as in terms of the personal value investment uh, but also in terms of the actual pros- process of building it so as a result we have seen all over the world particularly in the west uh, we have seen the creation of extremely boring uh, uh, built environments and so what is a boring built environment a boring built environment would be one that uh, a i mean there are many different aspects to it but a it would be something that uh, thwarts very basic needs we have for uh, spontaneity say, for variety uh, in what we receive okay uh, in complexity okay we need a minimum level of complexity which uh, which is not definable in advance but uh, the classic uh, i think the classic non corporal punishment which actually is a corporal punishment uh, in in classrooms has been to make the kid stand facing the wall correct yeah. <laughs> it's a corporal punishment for me because it's it's you know playing around with your wiring your wiring wants complexity in the visual field and you are really thwarting that wiring right so that's uh, a question perhaps in the most boring built environments they're handed down rather than evolved by the people who they're handed need down them. rather than built yeah, that's an, that may be a point they're imposed mm. uh, whether through state market you know technocracy yeah. doesn't matter 
So they're not built by the developers in any way. They yeah. just received. So I, think, I think the critical point there is not so much so in terms of what I receive, but also in my impress, in my how well it receives my agency, the built environment, and whether it's if it's if I have built it, it's of course the highest level of my engagement with with the building. So it's been reduced to a product. Let's put it like that. You know. It's been reduced to a product. Is there such a thing as a boring language? I know you, you are obviously very upset at, with, with, mm, with me. Boring with, language. What does it mean for... I don't know, because language is the operating system. Yeah. So how can the operating system be, be boring? boring? It's yeah. the content that goes into it. I don't know. You are, are, there, are there languages which are more expressive, which yield themselves to... A certain kind of stylistics, no, aesthetic. They are different. Uh, Some di languages differ, but at the end of the day, they seem to be able to do the same things given the opportunity. For example, Spanish is a very verby language. You don't have, you cannot land on the moon because land is earth. You have a separate verb, aludisar, to <laughs> to moon on the moon, right? In Hindi, you don't like you don't like having too many verbs so you make things into states pasand hai you know and there are a large number of other things like that where you use a noun but i don't find but we that live that in our languages don't just as we live in our dwelling environments we, but yeah, but so we live in those languages so much that we can't see outside that they are in any way inadequate because if they were inadequate we would make them adequate by by loaning words in or, no, no, or, we would or mutating all no. kinds of things yeah we pull yeah loan, loaning words is the prime thing and most tend to be largely nouns, but the point being that a noun right. is not going to disrupt a language. It doesn't it doesn't do anything to the grammar. Right. So the point is we're comfortable within that grammar. So maybe no grammar has evolved that is so constricting to us that we resent it. Hmm. I have never found that to be the case. You, It's an operating system. Oh. And it normally is suited to the purpose you need it for. For example, I speak a language, Bhojpuri, which is very much a village language. And when I'm told to do something else in it that it doesn't fit, then I feel robot block. So what I, What can you not do in Bhojpuri? Ah, now it's that is when you start asking the question, what is the language? Technically, one could do anything, but the point is that it has a tight fit with an environment right. in which it has grown. So if I'm to stand at a podium and give a political speech in Bhojpuri, right. um, Lalu Prasad Yadav can do it because he has built that capacity. I'm coming out of a place where it was used for storytelling right. and I would be inclined to couch it in that kind of mode, which could even be very cryptic. Mm. But the, but when I hear people get there and start tacking on endings onto words and the thoughts are coming to them perhaps in Hindi, it jars because I know that they are not adapting the language. They're playing a game and something is happening that's not real. So, even as boring or as limiting, let's not say boring, right. as the environment is, there's something real about it. And let's go further and use the word, it's alive. So, like, even when you were talking about uh, buildings which were hand, handed down, uh, there is a kind of a life in when you build the thing yourself or you find that it suits your purposes in a much more 
profound way. You always so, adapt it in some way. You personalize it. But you can't do much. The point is that you live very well within that system. And don't perceive it as having limitations. You o- systems only break under very different circumstances. And it's never because something's wrong with the system itself, the language. Because a language has certain minimum conditions. There's no such thing as a language which is going to be so inadequate that you will actually find it boring. And no language is dumped and people don't just move on to the next. Because when, 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 so languages die, mm. don't they? Uh, they do die, yes. And but but they, it doesn't necessarily die only when the speakers of that language die. So oh, there's no, no, a way no. in which people desert languages. In okay, way. Now, you know they, what I mean. Yes, so, I know. That's that's something so. I work on. See, <laughs> uh, languages die because the environments that sustain them and that gave them value have vanished. So if, for example, you were an Indian bonded laborer on an estate in the Caribbean. Bhojpuri gave you an identity, it gave you a cohesion, it didn't even give in India. When you move on and you go to school, it so happens that there's a school language, it's not the one you learn, huh? You learn the language that was not taught in school. You learn the language of the next level away from being an estate laborer, which is Creole. So people, so once you have become a Creole speaker and the schools are handed down and not something you have evolved, you begin to find that the language that suited your earlier existence is not going to work. And it's not a conscious decision. All you find is five-year-old children have decamped and are speaking something else. And when that happens and there's no value for knowing the old language, it begins to dwindle unless it's... uh, kept on pages and then you can say it's embalmed because a language is merely embalmed and not spoken is not alive. It does it does not take itself up like a tradition and move on there. But the the I wanted to get to the idea that you said about boring. That yeah. things be boring. You know it's a concept. And I remember a time it's a concept that uh, you mentioned clock time, and that's a, exactly the moment I wrote down time, that a perception <laughs> of time being wasted is a very modern concept, whereas think of color. You all see blue very easily. You know that the sea under certain circumstances is blue. And then you read in the Iliad, I think, that it's the wine-colored wine, sea. Wine, now, sea. they did... It isn't that the the sea sent off different images in those days or different wavelengths. It's just that the perception of it as some blue as a concept, as something so powerful that you would start looking for things that... So you think uh, we are projecting be, blue onto the world? Yes, I think so. And we are projecting <laughs> boredom onto the world. So there's exactly there's less way. boredom than we make it out to be because it's it's a created category. It serves the purpose of capital, creates leisure time, then you it capitalize on it and so on. It also assuages a certain notion of parental guilt because you don't have the time again <laughs> and that you need to occupy people not understanding that a certain amount of fallow time is useful. And here when we talk about point boredom... One thing in language and is the notion that learning is done often in a very gestating kind yeah. of manner. So often I find time is not very linear. When I get home and I sit and I waste time, I am bored. I do some 
if I'm bored, I may cut pickles. I may do a crossword. I may do what all. And then get up and in a flurry and write like there's no need to stop to even think. So this has been happening inside. And that boredom has been a cover for extremely valuable thought going on that was not yet ready to be conscious. Yeah. Yeah. That's exactly, I think that has come up in boredom and creative. And I think it's a very simple question. Is it good or a bad thing? Is boredom good or bad? And I think the boredom as as a kind of uh, sort of a nest for creativity, there's a whole philosophical tradition which upholds it, Nietzsche, Walter Benjamin. And boredom, of course, here has a fancy name, which as like all, of all fancy names is French. It's Ani. called Anui. Yeah. Anui is the fancy fancy <laughs> French boredom. And, you know, and, and the, the French fancy, are bored in a more polished French kind of are, way. French, when the French are bored, they are. But it's also not just that. It's a, it's a, it's a kind of a... It looks like an affliction, but it's actually a privilege. It's a privilege which disguises itself as an affliction that only the exceptional individual has that restlessness which is plagued by Anui, and that leads to creativity. That leads right. to creativity. But actually, this is also very much a class narrative. It's very much a class narrative, and there is actually a novel called Anui by Maria Edgeworth, and the the place it's a it's a Irish Protestant absentee landlord living in London, and his completely bored out of his mind. The word boredom is not even used once in the entire novel, but it's called Anui. Right. And it's very simple. He's too rich. So yeah. he's too rich. Mm. There's, he feels like there's so nothing I'll, more I can do. There's nothing more. But aren't poor people bored? Exactly. So that's yeah. exactly the other. I was actually want, I was interested in boredom, which is the more materially grounded. You know, and there was a, um, I had a dissertation student uh, in anthropology in, at Stanford who was working on boredom in the homeless in post-socialist Romania. So how, what is the relationship between homelessness and boredom? And I'm actually really interested in boredom and the question of power. You know, is boredom a marker of privilege or is boredom a marker of disempowerment? And of course, the real answer is it's both. Of course. But I'm actually interested in this very Marxist materialist interpretation of boredom and poverty and disempowerment, and which is exactly where... You know, my thoughts about colonialism and the sense of inadequacy that, you know, oh, where I live is provincial, I live is dull, is not there. This <laughs> aspiration, that's why boredom comes, because nothing happens here. Of course, also rich people get bored like Edgeworth's novel, there's nothing to do. But bored, how boredom organizes itself around this question of power and privilege is really fascinating. Yes. And how the dominant philosophical tradition, you know, headed by Nietzsche and Walter Benjamin, really focused on Anui, but and not on boredom. Right. So that really is interesting. You were saying something. So I think what's clearly, what's very clear here is that on the one, so that the idea of the banal or boring are categories that we impose uh, on the world out there to make sense of it in some, in some way. And, uh, so there is a real world, if we, if we all agree that there's a real world out there that we are referring to and we are making. So where does, where does this reside? Okay. One thought is uh, that these categories one could uh, ascribe to agency okay? mm -hmm. and one could see in, in the light of agency. So when you are talking about so, power... So boredom being a kind of powerlessness. Well, you know, I... So on the one hand, that is one critique and I would very much, you know, go down that lane for a bit uh, and figure it out, the, the, the power, uh, the, the relationship of boredom re, uh, with 
power or empowerment, disempowerment, etc. But at the same time, I think if we go back to uh, the relationship itself between the person and the reality around and the experience of lived time, the experience of space out there uh, and the environment and your larger life trajectory, I'm wondering whether there is really uh, any way out of uh, out of boredom in the sense what i mean is that it is perhaps inevitable that in that relationship uh, of me with my world there will be a kind of rhythm okay in which things will be interesting then they'll be boring my life will be uh, will be exciting and the very thing that will make it exciting for a moment uh, when i have too much of it will become boring mm-hmm. again so i think that that rhythmicity uh, which is not predictable i'm i'm not arguing for a systematic kind of rhythmicity or any causal relationships i think if we take that uh, in the realm of the relationship between the self and the world uh, that we are perhaps at the at some kind of core a uh, condition or core say reality of what we are talking about and then it becomes very interesting to look at how power comes into play and how it distributes boredom mm. or the qualities of boredom that it produces in relation to agency mm. agency to use a word you you use the word power i'd use the word value if you think of an undivided continuum of our lives we have chosen to inflict our intelligence on it and segment it and we've assigned value and therefore certain things are boring and not boring to everybody there are certain people who don't know what to do with a kind of time which is gestational time when a new idea could come up and very invisibly sneak up on you while you appear to be cutting a pickle or something but that value is assigned on what is not out not in your control so you you are doing boring things you are bored at the time because the outcome of that time or anything positive is unknown to you so you've segmented your life into useful times which in a very um productive sense you know if you in a there's a direct relationship if i do this this exactly this will be the outcome but the times when you don't know what the outcome will be and perhaps it may be nothing you've assigned a value of nothing partly because it is out of your control it's so it's mysterious yeah agency is actually a very useful word i like that the fact that agency has come up because um it's almost like losing agency in a world where you're expected to have agency and agency is against something around which one can construct the narrative of modernity when human beings start feeling they have agency over the world as opposed to again a world where the supernatural use the word supernatural and the magical dominated when you don't expect agency and then boredom might be that moment of when you lose agency over of course certain effective effective agency aesthetic agency or you, you lose a, a con- contact with clock time because you know when you're in boredom mode and you almost willing to let it carry you for a certain length of time you're outside of things that can be clearly quantified and valued moment to moment so maybe that is what they right. want 
But that quantification itself is a very post-industrial, yes, capitalist right, right. way of looking at life. Exactly. And because you have that moment, you sort of losing agency of that is. It's not the sort of only not way, but it is the way at the moment. Now, whether we feel boredom or we label it as boredom and that's why we feel boredom and so on, could it have been that all of what's happened would have happened, but we would not have felt bored today? Is I mean, do you know what I mean? Like, we feel a sense of boredom. There's a category, there are novels and this and that on it. Now, is it fundamental to all of what has happened? Do you know what I mean? Is it... Could all of... Could industrial revolution have happened, all of these things have happened and not led to... The this new category of boredom coming to be. Do you feel bored in particular? I, I, don't. I don't. Do you I ever feel actually. bored? Mm. Almost never. I never feel bored. That's true. Well, I mean, it's very rare. But see, I have small children. I have a five-year-old, <laughs> and I think one word which I think is a bit of a joke in our family, but we say we don't use the word bored. Uh-huh. So my children, for even now, she, my daughter is nine. It's like she says the B word, and I think this is kind of a common convention. It's just like mm. oh, it's only boring people are bored. It's a it's itself a little stupid that that saying, but there's this whole sense that and children complain so much about being bored that we there is certain something to do with the lack of imagination mm-hmm. um, that sort of leads to the perception of boredom. But I'm not sure it's only about lack of imagination because it's a good question. I don't remember, I mean, I don't, uh, I've not been bored for a very long time. Yeah, right. right. Exactly. But I, when I, were you I, last bored? I think as a child, as a teenager. And you were conscious a, of being bored? N- see, you couldn't put that word, that no. name to it perhaps, but it was this uh, you could call it frustration, you could call it uh, wanting to do something and not having something to do. You know, there's so many different things. There were times I, I remember when I have just got out of the house and got into a bus, yeah. right? Because I really, you know, this is not, I just, just have to, to break do something kind of or I have to go and meet somebody and not bother to call him up or call her up, you know, just go and it's fine. They're not there, fine. I had my right, correct? So, but it's very interesting. Perhaps... Uh, There's something is, interesting about the world that it offers you the ability to do that. It offers you the ability to break a rhythm whenever you want. I, in fact, if the times when I have broken the rhythm, and I refer to them as a time outside of time, have been the only times I remember. And I think back <laughs> upon my life. So what's the future? Where is all of this headed? I I would say like one of the things is just like Americans have floated the notion that people's right is to be happy when in fact that seems absurd well we are entitled to not be bored now that is also something that is put upon us and it is a condemnation of either how we've structured our lives or how things are structured around us but the point is that it 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 gives you a feeling that something is wrong and maybe it's actually not wrong at all so we need to wonder why we are being pushed into this very utilitarian notion of every moment of our time. I think I want to be able to sit and just stare at times. And because it's happened all too often that something good has come of it, maybe even if nothing good has come of it, but that that is perhaps the way life is supposed to be, at least for me. But that unused time is really going away. And I think digital culture here is really the game changer. I mean, the simple thing, like, you know, I was giving, I think, talking and giving the example of my one of my childhood memories of growing up in Calcutta is traffic jams. You get caught in traffic and the bus is not moving or the car is not moving. 
And that is a great time for boredom, apart mm. from all other kinds of discomfort. And I've written about this, how in developing nations, it, the problem is not always great trauma, but sort of dysfunction, power cuts, and being caught in a traffic jam. And then, but today, if you are caught in traffic, you have your earphones, you have your phone or your iPad. And if the, if there's AC, mm. you might as well just just forget about it. doesn't matter. You can get your work done. And I think increasingly what we see around and because digital culture has become increasingly democratized, people are shutting out their natural environments. It's very easy to shut out. And, you know, with an earphone and a, it's just you 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 can go yourself into any world that you can. So this this act or mode of turning inwards or at least going inside is non-boring? I don't know if I call it inward, really, because it's... Because, it, because you in, still have your it's material... Like it's kind of you, in, interiority yeah. in the romantic sense yeah. is a very significant yeah. thing. It's, it's not really a meditative looking, state. It's not You're meditative at all. Yeah. It's very... It's a certain kind of simulated environment, but it's like... It's always there. I mean, I mean, I made this unusual decision when I moved back to India not to use a smartphone. Right. And but the main reason was, of course, I have an iPad and all. I have all my apps, but I wanted the freedom when I travel not to... I wanted to stare at things. I wanted to look at things. I wanted to just, I mean, I, I'll carry books, but I don't want to. And I felt, because when I was in California, I had an iPhone. I Every time I'm at a traffic light, I'm just checking my social media. I'm checking my, mm. uh, my f- email, even when I'm stopping. And I wanted freedom from that, not because of productivity or anything, but because I'm not looking at anything. I'm not engaging with any environment. And that, I think, has really become a defining condition for people worldwide. I mean, you go on a flight today, you... Everybody is like, just, it's like a joke, right? Everybody has those cartoons. And that, I think, has fundamentally altered our relationship to the physical universe, to time, to the entirety of existence. So, And therefore to ourselves also, right? Yeah, yeah. In fact, I, I, would, I would think that we are all entitled to boredom. Mm-hmm. And that's what we are losing. I was thinking of the smartphone myself. And I started using it quite late. And I've seen a marked difference. I I don't allow myself uh, that you know half half a minute yeah. or twenty seconds of not being involved in something before you. So in a sense, the, what we're seeing is uh, the market, not just the market, finding its way right down into the interstices of our lived time and really colonizing it. Mm. And it's colonizing our consciousness and. Yes. Perhaps the way ahead, one of the things we have uh, staring at us as a challenge is to reclaim this right to boredom, to a really uh, a boredom that will be a kind of soil out of which we can find ourselves. So to reject, reject this somewhat, uh, this world of overstimulations in a way, right? Mm. But and where boredom has been constructed as a problem mm. and it's been a solution and is offered. And the solution turns up as, as, as a stimulation which is an app for somebody and it makes revenue for It's possible that yeah. like you're not getting bored by it and being able to utilize the time also is again about your agency. The only people I have recently seen actually yawning, falling asleep in class staring out the window with a completely dead expression are the children whose time is sequestered. They are put in the class. They do not understand a word. Again, back into language. The the poor children on affirmative action will give no help to understand English. They have to sit there. 
were they to take the same time under their own agency, they would do something different with it. They would not be yawning. Even if they were able to sit there and blank out the teacher and do something internally, they would not be bored. But the boredom is also that you are trapped. You are trapped in a situation not of your making and you can do nothing with it except survive it. So that is another notion. Those are the only people I've recently seen because they're engaging with something they cannot handle. They're yawning. They're, they're even falling asleep. Mm. But stimulation is, you know, that's also because I think the more the world raises the bar on stimulation, and the world is always doing that, more and more content, more and more. What are the limits to so that? that? I know. What happens is the bar of boredom is also going very high. People are bored <laughs> very easily. Right? I mean, I think even 15 years back, people would say, there's no TV, I'd be bored. And now, like, you can practically watch a TV on your palm, you know, or you can anywhere. So there's so much stimulation that it's also easy to get bored. I think I think we even hear from our parents and grandparents that, oh, we had so little, that that kind of tale that, you know, we were, we did with... But the problem is now the expectation is so high that, I mean, I'm thinking of even articles online, which after every paragraph, there's a link. So mm. there's a link to another article, which will link to another article. So you're obviously never... And this whole anxiety that there's so much, even I feel it. I'm, I consider myself a very avid reader, but even I feel like, oh, if I'm spending 10 minutes reading one article, I could have read like maybe... <laughs> so it, it has a capacity to change all of us. And this, I think, really is going to change, you know, this basic... What is effect. this doing to literature? Or what will it do to literature? Oh, Does it do anything? I, I mean, mean is, is there is there some kind of a tension or dialectic, you know, pick your word between these big sure. narratives? What's happening to literature? Uh, it's ter- what's happening to literature is just atrocious. I mean, you just need to take a flight to see. And this was even, I think I can win 10 years back, I, people see actually having books. But today, hmm. you, when they announce, so if you'd like to read, you can turn on the light. I'm like, who's reading? You know, Okay, yeah, maybe right. one tenth of those who have a gadget has a Kindle, but I doubt it. You know, they're not doing Kindle. So I think it's, there's a certain but in some ways this is literature was the great uh, sort of cultural logic of print modernity I mean the doom prophet in me says like literature wasn't around always there's a things were performative things were the the so-called so-called post postmodern is really a kind of a non-modern <laughs> we are returning to pre-enlightenment forms but we are returning to them in digital forms performative interactive so in a way it's really the the worst news is actually for novelists because novel is the <laughs> exemplary. Novels had a 200 year Exa- exactly. long the life. Novel is the exemplary It's about form. to die. Poetry <laughs> is moving to Instagram, you know, like, you know, whatever. Again, a lot of poets would say Instagram poetry is, and maybe it's not, it's whatever. There's a whole other judgment and it's easy. I mean, the yeah, one thing about literature is that it can, you can't look for an easy, it, it takes time. It takes that. That is gone. But as far as form is concerned, I'm very much a Marxist. I do believe that technology and economy, technology and economy, brought the novel into being. Yeah. And maybe it's taking it away it's again. It away. For, so what will happen to buildings and lived environments? I think we've. Um, so what we are seeing is this. Pattern. There's no doubt that compared to let's say 500 years ago, is there more sameness in lived environments than before? I mean, of course, there's a lot of variety as well, but. So that's that's a tricky one because um, a lot of the old because standardization is not necessarily sameness, right? Because we live in those spaces exactly, and we do things to them. So you, I think you, what you find in the pre-modernist um, built 
fabrics is high degree of similarity without uh, replication so what we see in uh, modern buildings is replication and uh, even today actually what is interesting about being an architect in india is that you can design your own for a house you design a particular size of window and particular detail of window and you get it built but we don't do that in in america they've for them it's a great thing if you have your own custom made window uh, window or door yeah yeah i have had friends who shown me window sizely that we did this for our office look at this i have a non standard window yeah and so for me it's like okay and i wish i i'm sometimes wishing the other way around but so we have this one track of extreme sameness there will always be uh, we will increasingly use perhaps uh, uh, software to you know tweak that sameness and bring in this element of newness within it and all kinds of things are possible but there is going to be more of this and we are perhaps go on the one so one track is of this kind of global integration that we are going towards but, in but the built environment but let's take a longer arc on this yeah. man so 500 years 1000 years who knows but if we survive the next 30 is it all going to convert so, yeah. Yeah, yeah, if we, we survive will. the next 30 uh, i think it can go on but there's there's going to be an inter i think to continue in the kind of marxist vein there is already a lot of internal contradiction that we have seen that has emerged out of uh, or a contradiction that has that has been created between this desire to uh, standardize and the capacity of you know, real bodies communities to really live with that so there there is this kind of we are in a moment of tension and one indication of the tension is the extreme uh, recourse to uh, very uh, out and out uh, different kind of architecture right mm. architecture which is uh, constantly trying to show itself as being beyond the reach of ordinary forces of gravity and you know technology etc and which is working really hard to look extraordinary you mean not just not just the desire to be spectacular it's spectacular but uh, there was a moment when that was really say 15 20 years ago you would be only spectacular you know, frank gehry and a lot of his buildings uh, though he perhaps amongst all has been really the poet of the ordinary right in his early work in between his own house in santa monica uses expanded wire mesh the most ordinary most ordinary and uh, devalued materials of a modern industrial vernacular he takes and turns into a really interesting poetic expression but then he moves into this takes that and moves into a such a uh, uh, obviously uh, exciting unusual kind of um, language which also zahadi and among others uh, have mm-hmm. developed the irony is that soon becomes the new boring yeah because it's now you see it everywhere and you know it's just a game that different people can play but then for that it has to be non replicable i mean at least the motifs which is yeah it's not a big deal anymore right i wonder what to think of las vegas and the whole <laughs> what's going to happen to languages peggy i mean do you, do you, do you, because you, you know there's always something this... positive or nice <laughs> i don't think i can Yeah so but you know I think we've we've touched upon the standardization notion I in know. a few contexts now obviously there's you know English What's going is to happen? yeah I mean again with a long arc who knows but you might have some instinct It doesn't have to be a long arc this is the, exactly the question was asked to me at the end of my 5 days of lectures at Bombay University which was asked more pointedly so is it all ending in language death and my simple answer was yes 
<laughs> because basically as distances shrink, as the power of a single ideology or paradigm spreads, where it outstrips, like you say that there's a contradiction, which was a nice dynamic tension, we're getting a sense of less of that. It is being resolved in a very brutal fashion, the way the system wishes. So the larger, larger forces uh, wish one language. And one language is wonderful that we can all be talking, but, but the, Peggy, there the is downside also is that the others all die. But Peggy, there's also something very natural about this, right? People... Do you believe that? The, sure, there is something top-down. There are these no, big forces. No. There are many ways in which the world could have gone, and this is merely one of them. Mm -hmm. Look at, for example, the ancient Harappans. They lived in for thousands of years, no, no sign of armies, no sign of warfare or being attacked, no sign of metastasizing to many places. There are other modes, but something since the Industrial Revolution, or we could go back 4,000 years where people started exploring the world and taking over parts for, their, for themselves. We've been on a large mainstreaming project and where anything that does not fit that narrative is othered, and if it is not contributing to it, it is actually boring because it's tangential. So the question to ask is, is this the only narrative? And yes, for the moment, yes, language death is certainly there if all the rivers are flowing into this, uh, the tributaries are flowing into the same river and we're going to flow to the end of to the greater ocean and vanish. But were there other narratives? And is it time now when... It's almost too late that we step back a minute and wonder, again, take another look at even things like boredom. What is banal? What was normal? Because it is now not, not mainstream. It is not uh, part of the fast-paced moving river. Perhaps out of some of these boring things on the periphery, we can find new possibilities which are less harmful. Well, something will give, won't it? I mean, there's a human impulse. I mean, everybody in the world speaking exactly the I same language. I don't believe language. it's human. I don't see faces behind it. I see that we are now in such a large, uh, what shall I say, a paradigm that something faceless is driving it. Right. So the question is, do the boring things on the side give hope that perhaps out of them something else might come? if it's not too late. So you ask about languages, they may die, <laughs> but they may not. The ones that may not are the ones that people would call boring. So perhaps boring is a very good counterweight to what one might even call a diseased mode of development that we are on. Interesting. That's a slightly bleak, but you know, it, it, it is what it is. I don't think it is deterministic. I don't think it is the only way we could have been. Right. I think there are many ways and we blind ourselves. But the boring gives us the opportunity to look within to other away. things and see other possibilities. And perhaps it also gives us a chance to turn our gaze towards uh, the opposite, which is the exciting. Mm -hmm. Right. And re-examine the exciting. And what it means. What it and what means. value we ascribe yeah. to it. Thanks. That's a good note to end this on. Thanks to all of you for making it and we look forward to having you soon again. Thank you for coming. Thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you.